Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The North Carolina State Prison System shut down three prison facilities to reshuffle staff and address an upswing in COVID-19 cases, in part by creating a medical surge unit. Commissioner of Prisons Todd Ishii says all three closures are temporary, though the possibility of state budget cuts over the next year make that hard to guarantee. The system suspended operations altogether at Randolph Correctional Center. It closed minimum security units at Southern Correctional in Montgomery County and Piedmont Correctional in Rowan County, though other units there remain open. Southern Correctional has turned some of its regular beds into hospital beds so it can serve as a medical surge unit. Much of the staff from Randolph have been diverted to Greensboro to monitor inmates admitted to the hospital. Prison spokesman John Bull said only 10 inmates out of some 30,000 in the system were hospitalized for COVID-19 per the state's vaccination rollout plan, prisons, and especially staff and older and sicker prisoners will be one of the top priorities when vaccines are available. Along with nursing homes, other congregate living settings, and people at high risk for a severe case of COVID. Ishii told lawmakers that prison workers are tested for the virus every 14 days now at high-risk locations, and that 5% of staff and inmates system-wide are tested monthly at random. The system had 318 staffers out of work because of COVID-19 positives or exposure protocols as of November 24th. Inmates in Menard Correctional Center are reporting that all inmates are being locked in their cells seven days a week, with only one hour a week on the yard for movement. Inmates are also reported to have no phone access. Securus Technologies, the company contracted by the Illinois Department of Corrections, has not repaired phone infrastructure, leaving 500 inmates housed in the West Cell House in Menard Correctional Center to share three to four remaining operational phones. Public officials acknowledge that prisons are COVID-19 hotbeds and plan to give priority vaccinations to corrections officers, but not to millions of vulnerable inmates. There is broad consensus that healthcare workers should be vaccinated first, followed by those in long-term care facilities, then essential workers, then medically vulnerable and elderly people. Prison inmates are not ranked in these top tiers, even though some of the largest COVID-19 outbreaks happened in prisons and inmates are four times more likely to be infected than civilians. The United States imprisons 2.3 million people, more per capita than any other nation, including 500,000 people awaiting trial. 44,000 young people are held in juvenile facilities and 42,000 immigrants are held in detention centers. At least 200,000 inmates have contracted COVID-19 and at least 1,450 inmates and corrections officers have died. 
Up next, we have a follow-up conversation with Corey Cardinal, who has spoken with Perilous Chronicle on our past two episodes regarding a hunger strike at Saskatoon Provincial Correctional Centre in Saskatchewan, Canada. Previously, Corey detailed his experiences during and after the hunger strike, and now he gives us some updates and tells Perilous about the inmates' rights issues that led up to the hunger strike. I thought I'd give you a little update and maybe a little bit more insight as to uh, the broader context of the eradication of inmate rights. Um, According to uh, Saskatchewan uh, Health Authority guidelines now, because the ministry has taken uh, uh, direction and guidelines on how to best manage the infections here, so they've now grouped together the negative inmates together and move them into uh, an area of the, the correctional together. So, And then they put all the positive inmates that were uh, infected into one, one area of the jail. So I'm housed with all negative inmates through two, uh, two COVID tests, which uh, would group us together as a classification of COVID negative. So I'm on, uh, I'm on in the dorm, one of the dorms that was involved in the hunger strike. So they grouped all those inmates together that were positive into a high, higher security area with cells. And then they moved all us in a dorm here that was uh, overcrowded at one time, but now because of diminished uh, inmate counts and public pressure from uh, various organizations here where there's now at 50% capacity in this dorm. I don't know how it is in the other dorms, but I don't know what work's being done in the public prosecution's office, but I know that uh, they've been releasing inmates uh, that fall within a criteria for uh, probable release criteria, right? So RLs which more commonly called an early release, reintegration leave. You have to fall within uh, a criteria, like stuff according to uh, whatever uh, qualifies as for your reintegration leave, whether it's a humanitarian uh, integration leave or just for rehabilitation. So there's a lot of inmates that are trying to access social supports here and trying to, because there's some housing issues going on out there. So I've been reaching out to John Howard to increase supports and make available for inmates here so that they can more readily access social supports. And so they've given us another extra call, another 10-minute call, so it just kind of makes things a little bit better, you know. It's a gesture. There's inmates here that are trying to get support, uh, housing, addiction, everything basically to meet their needs, their criteria for the RL and be released. The correctional is it's operated on a system of earned privilege. So you got your your hole, you got the the hole, the holding cells, then the segregation. You earn your way to good behavior, to different segments of earned privilege, more open open units, right? So you you go from the holding cells to segregation, which is administrative and disciplinary segregation, to uh, semi segregation, which you come out more based on your behavior, and then you go from there to the, the dorms which is just kind of open scenario. There's six units that are dorms here. So from there, you earn your way to the units, the living units, which is cells, but you come out uh, a little bit more. They also use those for behavior modification units. That's also where they house most of the gang members because this summer there was a fallout in some some gang activity that happened. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And then from there, you, you come to the privilege units, ECHO, which is these units. And then from here is where you earn your uh, 
programming. You get access to programming here, access to jobs, kitchen workers, maintenance workers. You can go around and sweep and stuff, and there's more casework involved here. It's just a lot more opportunity in this earned privilege unit. So basically, you have to earn addiction program. So you, you get no programming in any of the other units unless you make it through a different classification to these earned privilege units. And then from here, you're more, you're more likely your opportunity rises more here to go to reduced custody, such as urban camp, which would be the next level of earned privilege unit. And then from urban camp, you go work in the community and this and that. You, you can, you know, there's more, a lot more privilege. And then the reintegration unit, which is more commonly called CTR, so that's in the community. So that would break down your system of earned privilege units and your classifications. So I just wanted to uh, maybe emphasize a lot of, on a more general scale of how our the inmate rights have been deteriorated, stemming back from Brad Wall prison reform. So I don't think they understand like uh, the context of how everything got taken away through prison reform, right? So I just wanted to briefly maybe give you an idea since Brad Wall kind of reformed the prison and took away basically everything. So he privatized the food services. So then it reduced the cost, a cost-effective way to feed inmates here in Saskatchewan before it was, it was, uh, government run and so yeah and so it was just a cost effective solution accountable to taxpayers right and then he he took away all the the clothing so now uh, we institutional friendly clothing and in doing so reduced our our individualism so we have institutional clothing the phone system privatized that from a telemate so before we were able to get incoming calls, we were able to phone other institutions. We were able to contact you to people our loved ones was uh, you know, more more accessible. So tell me, he, he instituted a private company that from I think the state somewhere that uh, was a security improvised telemate system. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it reduced restricted a lot of our calls, overpriced commissions, kickbacks, so Telmate also preys on the families of inmates by overcharging for calls, fees, drastic fees and stuff, so it created a lot of uh, uh, stress for inmates here and uh, reduced the, the contact in the community to their loved ones. Visits were told, contact visits, so inmates couldn't even call their babies or have any kind of physical contact with their loved ones. Um, I think the mail was pulled also, so we couldn't write letters more uh, accessible. So before it was like the mail postage was paid for by uh, the government, and so some kind of uh, policy was implemented. So we couldn't send letters to other institutions, our families and other institutions, our wives that were locked up in Pine Grove. And I think in doing so, I think that's a violation of our charter rights in, uh, to communicate, right, to associate. So I don't know that's yet to be challenged, but I, I really think there's grounds. When Brad Wall was elected as Premier of Saskatchewan, I think he instituted uh, prison reform. So that's a, over a span of his, his term as Premier is when things started started changing for the, for the inmates, right? Like uh, the eradication of our rights. And also like uh, a tough on crime agenda from uh, Stephen Harper also see mandatory minimums 
I think, uh, for a lot of charges. But uh, most, a lot of them got uh, shot down by uh, the Charter of Rights, right? They were deemed un- unconstitutional. So, But a, a few of them stood. And also, like, I think a tough on crime agenda from Stephen Harper, I think he introduced legislation that amended the criminal code to take away two-for-one remand credit for remanded individuals. We don't, we don't get double time anymore because of access to programming, you know, like before in programming and the remanded, uh, if you're remanded, you don't get no programming or nothing, like you don't get basically anything as opposed to sentenced individuals, right? So sentenced individuals serving sentences get more rights, more access to programming, basically more opportunity than remanded individuals. And in Canada, there's a principle that the law uh, sits on, and that's the right um, to be presumed innocent, right, unless you're guilty, unless you're proven guilty in a court of law. So there's more rights being given to people that are guilty of a crime instead of remanded individuals which aren't even convicted of crimes yet. So I think that one, that one is a little bit noteworthy, too. So a lot of these mm-hmm. variables played into a tough on crime agenda, a, a progressive conservative minded voter base also played a lot, I think, into the eradication of inmate rights also. So there's a lot of variables here that I've mentioned also. So things are getting worse in jail. In regard to these changes that were instituted by Bradley Wall, these privatization of the different mechanisms of the prison historically, was there a a change or an uh, increase in protest on the part of prisoners, or did prisoners oh, okay, respond? Okay, what you're saying, yeah, not really. From what I've seen, I know there's a, a lot of drastic action riots. I know there's a lot of riots that I've seen. Yeah, so like I know there's a lot a high level of stress, a breakdown in in communication between the common staff and the common inmate. There's been a lot, a lot of fights that I've seen a rise in gang activity that I've seen, I know the Saskatoon is home to a lot of gangs. It, uh, it's the most embattled, exploited, overcrowded correctional for Aboriginal men in Canada, I'm pretty sure if I'm not mistaken. So there's been a lot of violence. There's been multiple riots. No one riot here in the big dorm was over staff, not something about uh, access to ceremonial smudging activity and so that's what sparked that one if I'm not mistaken. So there's been a breakdown in the, the rights of the inmate and it's been causing stress and it's been causing animosity and an unsafe environment, uh, just, just a general unsafe environment, you know. So they've taken so much from us. They took our clothes, they took our food, basically privatized it. They, they restricted the phones, they took the mail, the visits, you know. And the dollar a day, too, they took that. So, I mean, they just broke down, like, everything, everything. Like, they just reduced us to eating peanut, watered-down peanut butter and jam sandwiches and reduced us to paying for inflated canteen prices, which sows divisions and which uh, creates, you know, uh, a lot of inmates. It, it creates tension with the inmates because of overpricing, you know, and it creates a stingy atmosphere, right, with inmates, so they're reluctant to share, so, you know, increases uh, thefts amongst the inmates, you know, and there's, I see lots of fights over canteen because they're overpricing. I think it's all very relevant to put that into context, and thank you for, for, for listening to me, and thank you for, you know, um, amplifying my voice for me I, on behalf of the inmates. 
Compassionate release is the principle that sentences should be adjusted given, quote, particularly extraordinary or compelling circumstances, which could not reasonably have been foreseen by the court at the time of sentencing, unquote. While it is usually considered from the perspective of an individual prisoner's suffering, for example, from a terminal illness, compassionate release has become an urgent, collective demand in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, as it spreads within the crowded, poorly ventilated prisons across the United States and elsewhere. Many of the authorities' claims of pursuing compassionate release on a meaningful scale last spring have fallen flat, with release only being doled out to a tiny proportion of prisoners. Even many prisoners held for technical violations of their probation or parole are still being denied conditional release. WFYI reported earlier this week that only 27 people have been released in Indiana's state prison system due to COVID-19 concerns, out of a prison population of 26,000. We now air the first of two episodes dealing with compassionate release, as Allison Guernsey tells us the history and barriers involved in this form of sentence reduction. My name is Allison Guernsey, and I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. I run a federal criminal defense clinic, and I used to be a federal defender trial lawyer in the Eastern District of Washington before I came to Iowa. Compassionate release in the federal criminal system is rooted in a particular statute that was enacted as part of the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984. And that particular statute is 18 United States Code Section 3582C1A. Um, and it's quite a mouthful, um, but essentially what we've done throughout the years is we've distilled that code section down colloquially into what we know as compassionate release. It's important to, to know, however, that the statute itself is not actually called a compassionate release statute. Instead, um, the statute provides for specific circumstances in which district courts or sentencing courts can reduce a sentence that's already been imposed. And one of those circumstances in which a court can reduce a sentence that's already been imposed is if the individual who is seeking a reduction can establish what we know as extraordinary and compelling reasons. Now, interestingly, extraordinary and compelling is not actually defined in that statute. Instead, that statute refers individuals under its provisions or essentially says to the United States Sentencing Commission, hey, United States Sentencing Commission, you need to develop criteria or a definition for extraordinary and compelling reasons. And uh, the Sentencing Commission then has the authority to do that. So the statute was first enacted in 1984, but the Sentencing Commission did not in fact start to enact a policy statement or to develop what extraordinary and compelling uh, circumstances was until 2006. So in other words, it waited over two decades to sort of tackle the task that Congress had given it. Uh, it started developing its first, what we call a policy statement in 2006. It did some amendments in 2007, and it also did some amendments in 2018. One of the weird things about what happened though is that the Sentencing Commission never actually defined extraordinary and compelling. What it did was just start to list a series of examples. Right? And so the examples that it has are the types of things that we think of, I think when we think about compassionate release, people who are suffering from terminal illness, um, individuals who are suffer suffering from debilitating medical conditions, um, individuals who are really at, at, at the higher end of, of 
their life, right, in terms of age, who are 70 plus, who then maybe have served a large portion of their sentence, maybe some people who are a little bit younger, but who have really debilitating medical conditions. So it created this list of things that we, that shouldn't say we, I should say that the Sentencing Commission thought were extraordinary and compelling. And then it had a provision for um, the death or incapacitation of a minor child, a spouse or a registered partner. And then the last sort of example that it had was something that we refer to as the catch-all phrase. And it basically said, release would be okay if the BOP director determines that there exists in an individual's case an extraordinary and compelling reason other than the ones that are listed or some unnamed extraordinary and compelling reason in conjunction with some of those that are listed. But again, it never really defined extraordinary and compelling. It just gave us this list of potential examples. So what happens is that uh, the statute is not used, right? It's not used because one of the peculiar things about it is under its terms, it's only the Bureau of Prisons that's authorized to move for a reduction in sentence. And what this means is, is the Bureau of Prisons serves as a gatekeeper. The Bureau of Prisons is responsible for looking at the individuals that are living in a particular facility under their control and weeding out people that they think are um, either fit this criteria or otherwise deserving of compassionate release. And so even though there is this legal criteria, according to some of the work that FAM and other organizations have done, you see that the Bureau of Prisons has in fact developed over time sort of its own criteria that it's applying uh, to these compassionate release requests. And they're criteria that may not actually be consistent with what's in the statute or what's in the Sentencing Commission policy statement. For example, uh, is the individual going to pose a danger and not even looking at whether they qualify under other criteria? Um, or frankly, um, I think there's some general consensus that the Bureau of Prisons was looking at people and just saying, hey, does this person deserve it, right? Deserve it in, in, in the Bureau of Prisons conclusion, right? So not only do you have the BOP serving as a gatekeeper, the BOP is developing its own criteria and regulations. It's not applying the criteria as they exist. And so because the BOP is the only one that can move the court to grant someone compassionate release, it's not happening. It's not happening at all, in fact. And I think that there was um, an, an Office of the Inspector General report in 2013, I think was the first OIG report to really delve into the, to the compassionate release statute. And it found it very troubling. It found it very troubling that the Bureau of Prisons wasn't following necessarily the law. It found that the Bureau of Prisons wasn't referring many motions to the court to grant release. And it also had some pretty troubling statistics. Um, so if I look here, it turns out that the BOP approved only about 6% of 5,400 compassionate release applications that were received between 2013 and 2017. And in that same time period, about 266 people died in custody while waiting for the BOP to review their applications. So we have this statute that is supposed to provide the courts with a way to release people early from terms of imprisonment if they have extraordinary and compelling reasons, 
but we have a BOP and a sentencing commission that haven't provided clear guidance as to what extraordinary and compelling reasons are. We don't get any judicial development of that as a definition because the people who are trying to seek release aren't even able to petition the court themselves. If they petition the court, the court is required to dismiss their applications for lack of jurisdiction. The Bureau of Prisons is not moving on behalf of anyone, clearly even people who are incredibly sick because they're dying in custody. And so at some point, I think a bipartisan group in Congress and really hardworking criminal legal reform advocates from a variety of different organizations get together to push Congress to say enough is enough. It's not only frustrating people who are dying in prison, but it's frustrating people who are advocating on their behalf. And frankly, it's frustrating co uh, Congress people whose whole intent under the statute was to provide judges a way to allow individuals who were in need of early release to get early release. So enter the First Step Act of 2018. And one of the provisions uh, of many provisions under the First Step Act of 2018 was a desire to expand compassionate release and to expedite compassionate release applications. So not only allowing people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get to the court to get to the court, but then also allowing them to get to the court much more quickly. There was no timeline on what had to happen in the BOP before, and hence you see a lot of people passing away without ever having had their request resolved. So what happens under the First Step Act of 2018 is it essentially, well, I should say it pushes the BOP to the side a little bit. Now the BOP is still for the first gatekeeper in a very, I think, minimal way, in the sense that now if an individual wants to apply for compassionate release, or I think it's probably better called if the individual wants to file a motion for a reduced sentence, then the individual still has to ask the BOP first. The individual in custody has to say to the warden of their facility, hey, I think I have an extraordinary and compelling reason for release. I would like you to release me. Now, instead of the path ending there, what happens is the individual who's asked for a motion to reduce their sentence or a reduction in sentence is now able to go through the BOP administrative process. And once that administrative process proves not fruitful, they can move directly with the court and file a motion with their sentencing judge. Or they can wait 30 days. And at the end of that 30 day period, regardless of whether the warden has said yes or no, regardless of where their claim is in the BOP administrative process, they are now empowered to move the sentencing court for a reduction in sentence. In order for someone to get a reduction in sentence, um, they have to show the district court or the sentencing court that they do have extraordinary and compelling reasons. They also have to show that a reduction would be consistent with the quote, applicable policy statements. And then they have to show the court that release would be appropriate under this other statute that allows the court to consider the history and characteristics of the individual, the nature and circumstances of the offense, the need to provide adequate deterrence to that individual, and all these other factors that we generally consider when imposing a sentence in the first place. And we call those the 3553A factors. Unfortunately, what happens for many of these individuals is that they're not entitled to a lawyer when they move for compassionate release in the district court. 
Whether you get a lawyer depends 100% on the jurisdiction in which you were originally sentenced. Because some jurisdictions allow the Federal Public Defender's Office to take these cases and to work through these cases with the individual who's trying to seek a reduction. Whereas some jurisdictions, the Federal Public Defender's Office simply don't have the resources to do it, or perhaps the court has said, we are not gonna authorize you to do it. And then of course we have at least, there's only two districts in the nation that lack a Federal Public Defender's Office completely. So one of those being, for example, the Eastern District of Kentucky. So in many cases, you have people who may have really interesting claims or strong claims that they have extraordinary and compelling reasons and should be released, uh, but they don't have the assistance of a lawyer to do that. Thanks again to Perilous Chronicle. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. We'll have more on compassionate release next week. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.